Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today we'll be talking about anti-terror laws, whether it started with 9-11 or whether it started way before that. I'll be talking with Dr. Asim Qureshi, Research Director at CAGE UK. Enjoy! You might think that it was 9-11 that triggered the, the wave of what would normally be seen as totally illegal, in fact, against the realms of law that we all understand. I'm not a, a person of, of, of much uh, legal knowledge, but I know enough to know that, for instance, when you're standing accused of a particular crime in a court of law, that you have the right to see, for instance, the charges and the evidence behind those charges leveled against you. But it seems that since 9-11 particularly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but since 9-11, we've been on this downward spiral towards creating what I would think is a, is a paralegal sphere, something that is, you know, untouchable by, by law itself, um, in which people accused of anything that is whatever remotely re related to terror or terrorist or, or terror charges um it's it's basically a different set of laws uh but but the thing that you know i don't know whether it's ironic whether it's funny whether it's tragic but the thing is that we find ourselves far less safe than we ever were before that particular moment yeah i, mean, I think it's a really good question because um there's so many different ways you could tackle this. I think that the question of safety is a really important one because, you know, with any kind of project, business, whatever you have in the world, you would look to see whether or not you had a stated objective, which is to increase security in this instance, and whether or not over a 20-year period you were able to achieve that goal. And if systematically everything that you did resulted in you know, increased amounts of danger, increased amounts of violence, increased amounts of disenfranchisement and suffering, then you would say that you failed in your mission. Your, your stated goal wasn't reached. And I think if there's, a, if there's a legacy of the global war on terror since 9-11, it's that it was a catastrophic failure in regard to simply the number of lives that have been lost, the number of people that have been detained, the rise of authoritarianism. And we're talking here on a global level. On a global scale. On a global scale, yes, absolutely. But, you know, the thing is, is that 9-11 provides a platform for all of these policies to kind of be expanded at a rate that we had never seen before. But the reality is that we had seen everything before already in different spheres, in different times. Um, particularly from the colonial period, you know, think about kind of the British repression of the Irish um, since the 1600s, really, um, you know, all the way through the policies that they implemented in India, the policies they implemented in Malaysia, in Egypt, you know, these things are cyclical. We've seen them being used. We've seen all sorts of national security legislation being implemented, people's rights being taken away, people being extrajudicially killed with impunity, torture being endemic. Um, and so if we take a global and longer historical look at what happened after 9-11, it's built up on top of platforms of other forms of injustice. So for example, the word terrorism and the way that it's instrumentalized in order to um, detain, to subvert, 
you know, you, you can't really talk about it without looking at what's been happening in Israel and Palestine. The way that the Israelis have used that term, the way that term was used in America in order to bolster the Israeli position. Um, all of these things are interconnected to one another. And of course, we haven't even you know, spoken about uh, the legacy of slavery and the black civil rights movement and the creation of, so of, from, of a from surveillance your study, state. Your research, you can look back as, as far as that and see traces to where we have arrived. Absolutely. I and mean, because this is built on that platform, you know, if you want to understand uh, the FBI's role, for example, in, in the national security state, you can't disaggregate it from the way that J. Edgar Hoover thought of black nationalists in particular, the way that he documented their lives, the way in which their personal private matters were used against them. I mean, a classic example is Martin Luther King's um, kind of infidelity being used against him by the FBI, for instance, right? So again, this is all because the starting point is there is a certain portion of this population that by their nature or by their belief system threat, uh, uh, present an existential threat to the majority's existence. So th th this is quite fascinating. So do you see this kind of spiral, this kind of, well, you, you know, some would call it evolution, but definitely not in a positive way, of this legal sphere of anti-terror legislation? Do you see this driven by politics, by ideology, by faith and religion? Or is it truly something that whoever's behind it believes that will bring about a sense of, sta of safety? I mean, I think it's to do with um, power. It's to do with um, the politics of fear, the way that fear sells very well. You know, we've seen that with things like Brexit. Like, but who gets to win? Who gets to win? I mean, corporate interests, ultimately. You know, the people who are, are privileged enough to be able to um, use these moments in order to enrich themselves, in order to gain power, in order to maintain power. The average person doesn't benefit in the end. Like if, if you look at Brexit, Brexit is an act of self-cannibalism. That's the only way you can really describe it. You know, people who were so obsessed with uh, a certain narrative about saving their own identity, they were literally willing to hurt themselves. And, you know, it wasn't the those who are in the elite positions and society that were being hurt by this because they just carried on they benefited in so many ways it was like your everyday person and of course we've now seen like a, a plethora of interviews with people who said i voted for brexit i severely regret it now because my businesses have all closed down i'm not able to employ staff so on so on so forth right so th the reality is that fear does sell very very well when people are suffering, because it's easy to um, to take on the narrative that my problems are because of somebody else, um, they don't. General general people don't know how, how they don't know how to hold the state to account, uh, especially when the state looks like them or aspirationally the state looks like. Uh, somebody they might want to be themselves one day, and so it's easier for them to to the state to signpost. Your problems are because of these Syrians and uh, coming into the country. And that's not just a narrative that's limited to the UK. We see it across the world. You know, even unfortunately, the, the most recent election in Turkey very much took on a similar narrative with the opposition literally using Syrians who 
you know, found sanctuary in their in in that country as a political tool in order to say, hey, look, your problems would go away if we just got rid of these people from our country, which is completely untrue. Turkey's economic position was to do with so many more forces and factors than the existence of immigrants who largely contribute. And we know from so much data that immigrants largely contribute to the economic growth of a country. But that's on a conversation that's that's um, politically ha kind of carries the same valence, does it? Let's let's so, bring sorry, it closer I know to I, home. I know, no, yeah. no, it's, this, <laughs> all this is is quite fascinating because. Like I said, I mean, when I opened, I said that, you know, I trace it back to, for instance, to 9-11. But there was some suspicion in my mind that 9-11 wasn't the point. It wasn't the beginning of history. That there was something that preceded that and allowed what's happened post 9-11 to happen. But let me try to focus on a little bit more detail so that basically we understand what we're talking about. What's are generally, what are these anti-terror legislations? What are the implications? What do they look like? And what kind of impact do they have uh, on the normal person who in their mind and the minds of those around them have done nothing wrong? Sure. So the anti-terrorism or counter-terrorism legislation that we have, let's focus on the UK. It's a kind of a, a panoply of different pieces of law, of policy, that help to dictate how the UK responds and reacts to different types of acts, right? So the first thing that we should mention is that when there's an actual act of violence that takes place in the UK, it's never prosecuted under terrorism legislation. So where there's actual violence, it's usually prosecuted in, under the Offence Against Persons Act or the Fire and Explosives Act, which is interesting, right? Because you say that you need this legislation to stop terrorists, but you know, you don't use that legislation when an actual act of terrorism takes place. And there's a reason for that, which is that the criminal justice system, actually, it's able to deal with violent crime very well. Um, it's able to hold people to account for their, their violent actions, even when they stop the plot from taking place in advance. So if you take a plot like Operation Crevice, for example, which was the um, plot to blow up the Ministry of Sound, you know, the police did their work. They uh, monitored these guys who were kind of uh, stockpiling um, fertilizer, and they they caught them, they prosecuted them. But terrorism terrorism laws weren't used to do that. So it tells us one thing: you for didn't us, need uh, them. You didn't need them. So what are terrorism laws used for? They operate largely in what we call the pre-criminal space. So, for example, let's take my colleague Mohammed Robani, who. Um, was traveling through um, Heathrow Airport. He gets stopped by the police. They ask for his devices uh, and the passwords for his devices. He and I had just been on a trip to Qatar where we had been interviewing a man who had been tortured by the FBI and um, the uh, Department of Defense in military custody. So we had, he obviously had very, very sensitive information on his devices. So trying to reason with them, saying, okay, maybe I can get my lawyer to give you the password if we're able to secure some of the information, so on and so forth. They didn't want to know. They didn't accept any of his um, uh, kind of negotiated attempts to try and provide them a way forward. And so they prosecuted him under terrorism laws. So he was prosecuted and convicted under terrorism legislation 
for refusing to hand over the passwords to his devices. Now, you have to understand that he's not under any suspicion. When you get stopped at the airport, and I've been stopped a, a few times myself, they tell you this is a suspicionless stop. They're not stopping you because they have data on you or because they think that you've been involved in something. They stop you because they said that they want to investigate whether or not you've been involved in the instigation preparation um, of an act of terrorism, either here or abroad. And then you realize that, well, it's got nothing to do with any of those things because the questions that they're asking you are things to do with how many times a day do you pray? Or, you know, which mosque they, do you they go really to? They really ask you that? Oh, yeah, they ask you that. And, you know, the, the funniest thing is when you're in the room, the most obvious example that this is largely targeted at Muslims is that there's a sajada in the room in the corner because just in case the six-hour interview goes over into prayer time, they want to have the ability to let you pray. Uh, I personally refuse. I pray, uh, and I hope Allah forgives me, but I pray um, yeah, afterwards, even if the time has passed, because I don't want them to feel as if they're, kind of alleviating me. I don't take any water from them. I don't take any food. I don't I don't pray because I don't want them to feel like they're doing me a favor in that circumstance. It's kind of an act of resistance from me. Um, but that's just one aspect. But this, this one thing, it affects hundreds and thousands of people every single year. And what's interesting is that when you speak to Muslims about their travel habits, they say that, oh, well, we get to the airport four hours in advance, five hours in advance. Oh, why do you do that? Well, just in case we get stopped. So it's it's amazing the extent to which something which is so egregiously racist and discriminatory has become so normal. Absolutely. Well, not that. We normalize we it. Normalize we it. normalize yeah. it by saying that we have to accommodate our lives. We have to accept that there's a second tier citizenship that we have in this country that we have to operate around. So we get to the airport in advance to accommodate their discrimination against us. It's amazing when we think about it and the implication of it. You know, even simple things like living under this kind of surveillance gaze of making jokes with one another, kind of black humor jokes, and then looking up at the ceiling and saying, ha, ha, that wasn't me who said that, that was somebody else. You know, you've been there, right? You just, you just joke about these things. But if we think about it just from a psychological perspective, what is it saying about us and our relationship to the state? What is it saying about us and our relationship to our own politics, our own faith, when we're constantly... What does it say about our relationship with ourselves? Right, absolutely, absolutely. With our, with our inner, inner thoughts. Yeah. With our instinctive reactions and the such. Um, and that's just one example I mean, it's, of it's, the thing. It's, it's troublesome. You've just reminded me of, of, uh, of a situation. Whenever I used to go to the US, I was... I was recently denied a visa, so I don't think I'll be going back soon. But um, when I used to go, I, out of everyone, I used to be invited to step aside and to go through another layer of security checks. Yeah, secondary screening. And uh, then someone told me, I, I asked, you know, just because I thought, okay, so maybe this is truly a random check. But uh, then I was told by a friend to check my boarding pass and if there was um, a quad S, four S's. And in fact, there was. And he said, well, whenever you're, uh, you know, whenever you, you have the bad fortune of having a quad S, then you're going to do at every single stop, every single airport. And then I realized that every single trip to the US, I'm, you know, I have a quad S. Um, and on one occasion, I was just a little bit, you know, having that kind of day. And I thought I'd just be difficult. And someone within the security team was saying, listen, you know, just go with it. 
just go with this. And I remember that. And I, I thought to myself, why should I go with this? Why should I've done nothing wrong? Why should I go with it? So people who are stopped, people who are searched, people whose possessions are forensically investigated, in a way they have to, well, they're, they're expected to be okay with it, but then comes another stage of them normalizing themselves with it. So basically, oh, fine, it's okay. You know, we've, 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 we've allowed for time. So I can go through this. But the implication of that is quite severe. It is, because it, it says something about how we conceive of ourselves as citizens of these countries. We know in our heart of hearts that there is another tear that we're living through. Um, it's the unsaid thing, right? So you see all this kind of kind of confetti of what it means to be a, a Muslim in the UK, Eid in Trafalgar Square, so on and so forth. All of this is confetti. Because what the state is trying to do is say, hey, look, you can be fully Muslim here. It's absolutely fine until you interact with the national security part of the state. And then it's like, well, no, actually, there is another layer that you have to go through. There is um, a whole series of things that you could be affected by. Like, for example, you and I, both of us have origins from outside of um, the UK. Our grandparents parents and grandparents came from somewhere else. We are now always at risk of having our citizenships removed. Somebody who is indigenous, whatever that means, to the UK cannot ha uh, have that happen to them. So automatically now, even within citizenship, there's a two-tier system. There's a two-tier system. You know, it's the kind of system that we're more familiar with in places like Kuwait, for example, where you have like six or seven different layers of citizenship, right? But that's here now and very much exists where the Home Secretary at a whim could say, I'm removing this person's citizenship. No notice, no explanation, and no appeal. Well, there is an appeal, but the appeal is through uh, a special court system where the government is permitted to provide its evidence in secret because if it's a national security matter, they can do that. Neither you nor your lawyer is permitted to see the evidence against Tell you. Tell me about the secret evidence thing. So the secret evidence uh, operates in, in, in a number of different um, arenas. For the first time last couple of, a couple of years ago, they used it in a criminal case. Generally, it's used in civil orders. So for example, if you have a financial sanction placed on you, if you have your citizenship removed, if you are placed under a form of house arrest called, used to be called control orders, now it's called TPIMS, um, if you have your children taken away from you, right? If you are, if any of these types of things happen to, to you, then um, these are all arbitrary decisions of the Home Secretary. So it's not the criminal law. There's a civil law, okay? There's no criminal case being made against you, but they call these kind of, you know, policy-based decisions that are being made. And because it's in the civil space, that same level of criminal uh, standard doesn't have to be met. It's an order that's placed on you. Now you have to fight that. So it's arbitrary in its, in its decision-making. You then go to the court, uh, whether it's the Special Immigration's Appeals Commission or it's the High Court, and you say, I need redress because I don't know why this is happening to me. You go to the court and the court says, well, the government's invoked uh, national security. And so they want to present their evidence in secret. So what we'll do is we will appoint you a special advocate this special advocate is there to represent your interests in the court. You can only speak to the special advocate before the proceedings begin. Once the special advocates hear, starts to hear the government's evidence, they cannot confer with you anymore. 
So you have to literally sit with this, this special advocate and tell them the entirety of your life. Anything that might have looked even mildly suspicious. Maybe you went to the masjid one day and you shook hands with the wrong person or even the right person. It doesn't matter. Like who knows? Um, and the special advocate then has to take the entirety of your life, listen to the government's evidence and try and defend you without being able to confer with you whether or not what the government is saying is true. It's such a draconian system that, you know, and you know, hundreds of people have been through this. You know, one thing we talk about when, when talking about the United Kingdom is it's courts, it's law. And uh, the, these are, you know, the bastions of, uh, of justice and um, the pride, if you wish, of, uh, of, of, of British whatever. Um, but what you say is, is absolutely horrific. The fact that your life could be on the line. Your life literally can be on the line. Well, it is usually. Uh, yet you can't even confer with the person who's supposed to be representing your interests simply because they might, in their questioning, they might relate to you some of the evidence that is held against you. And all of this, and this is what, what really gets me, is that all of this is done under the guise of, uh, of, of fighting terror. And one would think from the, from, from the headline that that's quite a noble thing. You know, you'd like to fight terror. I'd like to fight terror. But who gets to describe, who gets to say what is terror and what isn't terror? I mean, that's, that's where the crux of the matter lies. Well, we, you can't fight their terror. That's the thing. So when they go to Afghanistan, they go to Iraq, and they do mass executions, and they commit torture, then the state rallies around itself in order to provide impunity for those who are involved. So if you want to sue the uh, MI5, no, we're not going to let you do that. If you want to look into politicians who allowed for rendition and torture, we're not going to do that. And so it depends on what type of terror, because terror is happening every single day. And terror is the, 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 the greatest purveyors of violence in the world are nation states. There are no greater purveyors of violence. They whatsoever. are the ones who do the mass killings. They are the ones who've, uh, who, has, who have the blood of you know, those being killed over the course of the past several decades on their hands. Absolutely. But this, once again, this isn't, I mean, we're talking about examples from the UK, uh, but, but this is something that's now fairly global. Um, I would even go as far as to say that it's, it's become almost a franchise. Um, a few years ago, I, I was invited to give um, uh, a workshop for people who worked within the immigration uh, department in South Africa. Um, and, uh, you know, in break time, you would converse with people, get to know them, what they work within the Ministry of Interior Affairs and the such. And um, a couple of people came to me and said, we'd like to ask you more about, uh, about prevent. Um, and, uh, well, I told them what I, this, this was several years ago, about nine, 10 years ago. So I, I you know, I, I told them what I knew of prevent and that it was, um, it was doing the, the opposite of what it claimed that it was, it was, was in its initial. And I, I said, you know, I gave them the anecdotes that I knew about and the such. Um, and then they surprised me by saying, why is your country pressing it on us? so much. Why is it that they're telling us that we need to adopt it as a package like it is or else, almost or else? So that got me thinking about the array of policies 
You know, it was funny because uh, what what they they said, well, they explained it to us. They said it's like the airport security system. It can only work properly if it's done on both ends. When you when you when you're getting on your plane from the point of departure and then when you're arriving the same security system it doesn't work otherwise so let's say if if um, on the point of arrival they 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 prohibit a certain amount of perfume or uh, or alcohol or cigarettes or the such if the point of departure doesn't impose these same identical measures it doesn't make sense because you'll be allowed to take them on but you won't be allowed to to take them with you uh, off the plane so they gave that, they said that was their justification, that the, the policies need to be made the same. But this also leads me to, to think that probably anti-terror legislation is also, you know, seen as that kind of product that needs to be globalized. It's 100% marketed. Um, it's interesting because when I was researching prevent um, uh, policy being exported around the world a few years ago, um, in particular, some of this science, junk science that they've been trying to sell to do with how to identify risk factors. There was this one study that I identified. We were trying to get a hold of it, but it was being held behind layers of national security. So they said, because it's a national security concern, we can't release this study. It was done by these two psychologists. And this study underpins the whole of their theory of prevent. They, weren't, they wouldn't release it. So we were asking for it. We used a number of different people to do freedom of information, but they weren't giving it at all. Then eventually a journalist from America did a freedom of information request to the British. The response they gave that journalist was completely different than every other response. They said that we cannot share this for you because of its commercial value. And then what we found was that they were exporting this science to China in the lead up to China's use uh, in the concentration camps in um, East Turkestan. The Uyghurs. That's right, exactly. So China based a lot of its theory of radicalization and de-radicalization on the prevent model, of the signs that prevent started. And of course, what's ironic, of course, is that, you know, in parliament, they would decry what China's doing, and yet it's based on exactly the same narrative and logic. If you, you know, kind of study... Um, the uh, Chinese premier's kind of speeches and statements, it's almost like they came out of the mouth of Tony Blair in relation to de-radicalization, in relation to extremism, in relation to kind of the battle of ideas and whatever. There's no, there's no difference between them whatsoever. So you create the problem and then you decry its practice outside of your own territory when ostensibly all it is is an upscaled version of what you're doing every single day. Just because their practices of it are a little bit more egregious, it doesn't mean that it doesn't share the same root logic um, that, you're, that, that you've implemented here. South Africa is interesting because um, it's consistently put trust in its own Muslim population. Um, yeah, of course, it's not, it's not a, a bastion to human rights, you know, apartheid still very much exists in the country, has lots of different problems. But one of the things about South Africa that's interesting is that it refused to buy into the global war on terror um, from the outset because it said, well, we know our Muslim population and what you're saying about them is completely untrue. That was fascinating. I think a large part of that is to do with the kind of support that Muslims gave to the ANC in particular. Uh, over the years. But it's no guarantee that it will continue. I mean, so far it has. I mean, actually, one of the most interesting things was even with the formation of ISIS, uh, 
when South African nationals were going to ISIS territories, realizing that this whole thing was not the Islamic utopia that they were hoping for, and they were coming back to South Africa, South Africa did nothing to them in terms of detention. They, when they they came back in, they did a police interview. They questioned them about, okay, what's going on? You know, do you need any help? Do you, you know, have you suffered any trauma? Whatever, right? The kind of things that should be done to people who have come from uh, a war zone. And then they and, they they have a, a a word with the family, with the parents, and the they just went on about their they lives. Went, went on about their lives. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I mean, it which shows you think that is is the right way, the logic way, the rational way, the reasonable way, the productive way of doing things. It's what happens when you can trust your own own people, your own nationals, when you put trust in the systems and the structures of the communities that they come from, as opposed to treating everybody as a threat, as a baseline threat. And that's the difference, right? In the UK, the whole of the community is treated as a baseline threat. That's why even if you work with prevent, like people like Musharraf Hussain and whatever, right, or um, uh, Qari Asim, that even if you operate almost akin to a quisling to the state in relation to its narrative on prevent and in relation to its na narrative on counterterrorism, that at some point you will do something or say something that goes against what the state allows and you will be identified as a threat. And so there's no safe space. Really, there's none whatsoever. You have to buy into the logic of the deified state completely in order to be safe. Is it fair to ask um, whether these policies are designed for the Muslim community? Or, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure, I, I mean, I, I have no statistics, I have no... So you'll correct me here, but I'm pretty sure that this goes beyond the Muslim community. It does, but it largely affects us. So, for example, if we took look at something like Prevent, what the independent reviewers of terrorism legislation, people like David Anderson in the past and others will tell you is that, hey, look, 50% of the referrals are from far right or far left. And 50% of referrals are from Muslims. So, you know, there's an even number of referrals so, being made. I'm so thankful. Right. <laughs> but, you know, immediately when like somebody like David Anderson released the, his, his, his like kind of articles and reports, you know, I would go on Twitter and I would say, listen, yeah, fine. I only did maths up to A level, but I know enough to know that we're talking about ratios here. The ratio is 50% from a population of 3 million vis-a-vis 50% from a population of 50 million. The numbers are completely disproportionate to one another. That means that we have a much higher propensity of being reported than somebody who's ostensibly white. And of course, you know, somebody in the white population could be Muslim as well. We don't know because of the way that the data works. Um, they don't capture it by um, religion as such, but just by the type of referral. So it's, it's, it's so fascinating that... Um, the way that they use data is to try and give the perception that somehow we are not kind of more discriminated against than anybody else. But the reality is that we are. There is no other community in the UK that says things like, oh, I get to the airport early because I'm worried about getting stopped. Nobody. Nobody has changed their uh, travel practices. There's no community that's doing workshops about what to do when you're traveling, you know, and how to stay safe and how to um, deal with um, being under the you know kind of surveillance and scrutiny you know we're on, only we're doing that only we're holding those types of know your rights workshops in relation to the national security state and there's a reason for it
which is that we are largely the ones who are who are affected. Is it, would it be useful to present to the general public who, as you put it, I mean, are oblivious to all of this that is happening to the Muslim community, to the Muslim psyche? I mean, like you said, preparing to travel and uh, arriving at the airport, you know, hours uh, before they actually need to, just in case, just in case. Um, I know of someone, uh, actually a friend of mine, who always says, I never allow anyone to, to, to meet me at the airport because I might be emerging something like 10 hours after my flight arrives. So it doesn't make any sense having people... That's me. Uh, it's it's um, You think about it and you realize how how uh, expansive the impact of this is. I mean, things that you don't really pay attention to, but but how deep and profound the impact is. I don't even tell my kids what time I'm coming home because I don't want them to wait and start worrying that, oh, he's later and later and later than he was supposed to be, you know, to that extent now. you we I remember when I was much, much younger, um, when we were told and I have to say, I was telling others that um, discrimination against Muslims on whatever level, whether it be through the media or through society or employment or whatever, was largely through ignorance. Um, now, I'd like to, from, from, your, remark, from your impression, I, I take it that you disagree, but I, I'm going to ask you the question nonetheless. How much does ignorance play in terms of the general public becoming um, becoming uh, hosts for that kind of policy, for that kind of attitude that is carried out by the security apparatus? What would what would it take to get the general public in the UK, let's say, for example, to understand that this actually goes against them, against their way of life, you know, the thing that we always talk about, that ultimately this, whilst impacting someone whom they probably don't care about, don't know of, but will ultimately come back to bite at their own homes, their own families and the such. What needs to be done here? I mean, that's a really good question because obviously we want to put our faith in people's ultimate decency. The problem is that we have an issue of hegemony in relation to the way that narratives are dispersed in this country. You have to remember that The Sun and The Daily Mail are the two most popular newspapers in this country. And they regularly put out an invective against Muslims. And even in terms of our broadsheets, the most popular broadsheets are The Telegraph and The Times. So when you see the types of narratives that are coming out of the sources that people are taking in, we're already on the back foot because it's, it's holistic. Politicians will say something like, you know, women who wear the niqab look like ninjas or letterboxes, like Boris Johnson, right? They will say whatever they want. They can say literally whatever they want about Muslims. Melanie Phillips can say what she wants. Anybody can say whatever they want. And even if people kind of like get a little bit shocked by it, the reality is, is that it's okay to say it because there's no repercussion for saying it. Like the, 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 the only repercussion that I can ever think of in relation to an invective against Muslims is really Katie Hopkins. But that was only because it had proximity to the Holocaust of talking about a final solution. So it was the invocation of something that happened to, um, you know, something egregious that happened to the Jewish people that made it beyond the, the scope of what is okay to say.
other than her, I can't think of many people who have said something outwardly racist and discriminatory that has resulted in a sanction in their life. You know, um, Nick Cohen, for example, is recently going through a lot in the media, right? And, you know, finally. But this guy has like spent decades vilifying Muslims, right? And it's only his personal life, okay? We always knew that this was a terrible human being, that, you know, you know somebody who spreads lies, who, you know, injects hatred against minority communities in, in, his, in his written work and his spoken work. Um, and yet it took his own personal life, his own egregious behavior in his personal life to bring him down and expose him for being the type of terrible person that he actually is. And it so there is you in a, in a way of Al Capone, right. who despite the murders was brought down because of his tax the taxes. Right. And so there is no sanction. You can say what you want about Muslims. We are fair game. And, you know, say the Warsi talked about Islamophobia passing the dinner table test. So I'm, I'm never really looking at the everyday person because in some ways, you know, while every, every human being is culpable of their, their own beliefs, right? They are still only receiving what the state, and I'm talking about the entirety of the machinery of state. So the police, the judiciary, media, um, politicians, what they are providing them as food for their thinking and for their behaviors, right? So that's why, you know, for me and for, for my team at CAGE, we're always interested in holding the state to account and keeping our efforts directed at the state at all times because to think that the general population is going to be able to change their minds about you know who we are and what we're about when they are drip fed every day this diet of xenophobia and racism and discrimination i don't think that's possible because there's this miasma of discrimination that exists in this country and without holding that to account and you know bringing it to task for the role that it plays how can you expect that the average person is going to think anything otherwise you know they are i don't want to say victim to because you know everyone has agency everyone has their own personal culpability but they are in this cloud of you know thought manufacturing that it's very difficult for them to see outside of because they don't, most of them don't interact daily with Muslims. London is a bubble, as you know, right? You know, there are over a million Muslims in London. One tenth of London's population is Muslim. So we see something very different day in, day out, which is that we interact with non-Muslims on a daily basis. But not every part of the UK is like that. So it's, I think it's difficult. Well, let's, let's continue this, this global track. I, because I'm mostly within the political sphere, so my information, my resources are, are generally of a political sort of nature. Um, I'm often confronted when I post uh, or air um, various political incidents that go against what I claim to be the grain of British values of, uh, you know, justice and human rights and freedoms and equality and all of that. I'm often told uh, and on one or two occasions, quite openly in open sessions uh, on record, that, um, well, the people who tell us are actually Muslim, you know, and then you find out that it's, for instance, the Egyptian government that's 
informing, that it's the Pakistani government that's informing, that it's the UAE government that's informing. So in a way, I mean, it's a very cheap way of washing their hands over here from any uh, sort of liability. But it's a fact that amongst the Muslim communities in the West generally, in Europe particularly, uh, their, their, their adversaries are often uh, Muslim countries. Right. I mean, that's why I don't talk about Muslim governments. And this isn't a matter of takfir. I'm not saying that the people in charge are kuffar or anything like that. They have no locus to Islam as um, institutional structures. They are nation states with their own governments that are run in whatever way, either as authoritarian states or constitutional monarchies, whatever they want to call themselves, right? But the idea that by virtue of them being Muslim, that they have a locus to say what Islam is, I think that's always a mistake. I think when we talk about Muslim governments, I think we fall into the trap of forgetting that the state now is not just reified, it's deified in those countries. The state is public good as far as everyone is concerned. And so whatever the state says is what public good is. And that sometimes might be okay in terms of what Islam has to say, quite often it's not. Uh, and so life becomes cheap in that regard when the state is able to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, but and to use religious justification in order to achieve those goals. And that's why being suspicious of institutions like Al-Azhar, for example, or scholars like uh, Bin Baya in the UAE, I think that is healthy for us as Muslim communities around the world, that we should be suspicious of these institutions because of their closeness to the state and what the state has to say. You know, after Rabat or during it, when Ali Goma is uh, issuing uh, fatwas saying that uh, the protesters are kilab al-nar, right? Evoking the, the Prophet's language about the khawarij, right? What is that other than state-sanctioned religious violence. So, you know, the, the, it's so ironic because the Western world is always going on about Islamists. Islamists use religion in order to justify violence and whatever else. Again, no one does this more than Muslim nation states. No one uses religious edicts in order to justify violence as much as nation states do. And they do it from inside our most treasured institutions of religious knowledge. They use the. It's scholars. ironic. You've just reminded me that, uh, you know, Egypt. There's uh, the term when someone is uh, sentenced to being executed, they refer to the mufti. That's right, the uh, Sheikh Al Azhar. So ultimately, yeah. it's the mufti who uh, who signs them off. Mm -hmm. That's right. I think it was in 2019. There were a, a, a few young men who um, who were executed, and it, the execution happens very quickly. But it, it just it was shocked me that that the that has to have validation from a religious authority and this is across the board this is across the board that we see this type of religion being used and instrumentalized for the state and that's why i call it the deification of the state because the state takes on the role of effectively god and so it it is the arbitrator of anything that is good even if it goes contrary to the most basic tenets of islam yeah when you when you have in uh very open um, conventions, international conventions, such as Davos, for instance, when you have the foreign minister of a country like the UAE, 
um, who um, openly addresses European leaders and says, it's, it's your fault. You have uh, tens of millions of Muslims operating out of tens of thousands of mosques and prayer places who produce all the, all the terrorists and extremists uh, around the world. When you have that kind of person um, sending that kind of message in, in that, on that kind of platform or from that kind of platform, uh, you can see that the problem is far wider than uh, merely someone who has it in for Muslims or for, for, for others here in, in London or the such. Which is why they've always wanted like a Grand Mufti of the British Isles. Um, it's It's been a project that's been on the cards for a very long time. They want like a state-sanctioned version of Islam. I guess the good thing is about kind of Islam in the UK is that we're, we're too divided for them to be able to do that. In a way, that diversity of, of Islam in the UK in, in some ways benefits us because, you know, who do you take? Which fiqh do you follow? You know, Hanafis obviously out, out far outnumber everybody else, but they don't, they're not the full representation. Um, and then, of course, you have other communities, the Shia, and then you have like um, other denominations that, you know, aren't as well accepted amongst the Muslim community. So the Qadiani, the right, Baha'is exactly, such, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, um, who then represents Islam in the UK? But it's something that they've always wanted. Um, they've talked about convening, um, you know, kind of a panel uh, of a number of different denominations to come together to try and do it together. That's one of the reasons why um, the Labour government put together the Sufi Muslim Council. Uh, you know, back in the day, it was tr supposed to be this, this kind was of around two thousand and four. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. A kind of um, an opposition to the Muslim Council of Britain, but a project that could never succeed because ultimately. You know, even if even though they threw large amounts of money at it and organizations like the Quilliam Foundation, the reality is that these groups lacked the one fundamental thing that no one has been able to understand about the Muslim community, which is that the Muslim community has a very, very strong sense of its own identity and what it supports. You know, it's it's so funny because here in the UK, I could start a charity tomorrow, which is about planting trees in London and say this, this is from an Islamic perspective, I could hire a hall tomorrow, I could do my advertising and I could have 500 people fill that hall and I could get my funding for a year to plant trees across the UK, quoting, you know, hadith of Prophet talking about the Quran, talking about ethics, and people would give their money to it because the Muslim community understands its own central ethics. Even if you find like some roadman in the middle of Birmingham and you, you speak to him about the ummah, he will tell you very, 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 even if he's dealing drugs, even if he's doing all sorts of terrible things, right? There is a central ethic that he has to do with the sanctity of the Prophet ﷺ, the sanctity of the Quran, and the sanctity of the Ummah that he will never, ever betray, right? Something that generally is this government... You know, uh, and you know those who have a very hawkish view of Muslims do not understand. It's, it's an anomaly to the understanding, to the uh, right, to the ethos. Right, of, uh, exactly. Which is why, like organizations like Cage, have so much support. We don't need grant funding. We don't need government funding. We don't need any of this type of funding because we have fundamental trust. So, I Quilliam, Quilliam could never, in all of its years, put on an event and pack out a hall full of five hundred Muslims who would put their you know, hand in their pocket and give them money and say, we support you, go ahead and do good work. 
You can, almost any Muslim organization could do this. Anything, doing anything. As I said, from planting trees to doing mental health work to doing whatever, right? They all get funded by the community itself. Why? Because we always want to give towards good work. But an organization like Quilliam or the Sufi Muslim Council cannot survive except by external intervention. And this is a colonial practice. This has been around, you know, since you know the UK first intervened in the Muslim world. A very, very, very old tactic of trying to support fringe groups that take a state-centered narrative um, or a kind of supporting the colonial metropole, you know, always um, against the interests of the wider community. And that's what we see with these groups. You know, it's uh, uh, fascinating, but also quite horrific when you hear of how the British government um, in trying to, um, to extract information or intelligence from suspects um, did the uh, you know the, the 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 good old traditional job of exporting those suspects to countries which had no problem with um, with you know violent interrogation with torture methods and the such, um, which you know we as 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 the Brits we fully knew about. On occasions, were in attendance of some of those sessions, and were happy to use whatever information was extracted. Um, whatever happened to the subject, you know, many of them died, many of them were, um, and, um, it, you know, we used to call it rendition, but it goes to such lengths that you feel that, you know, everyone is in on it. You have regimes that have absolutely no problem whatsoever admitting to the fact that they would kill, they would torture, they would exterminate, absolutely no problem whatsoever, no shame to them, collaborating absolutely to the whims of so-called democratic, liberal, free, human rights observing states such as, such as, such as ours, but not exclusively ours. And therefore you have, I mean, the, the case that I recall right now is a friend of mine, Abdel, uh, Abdel Karim Belhaj in Libya, who was him and his wife were boxed, were literally dealt like, you know, packaged like suitcases and shipped over to the uh, Qaddafi regime uh, by Tony Blair with his supervision. It is alleged that he actually checked by phone asking his counterpart in, in Tripoli whether the package had arrived. And he managed to win his case. And he said, listen, I, don't want, I, I just want one pound, but I want the admission of the British government and authorities that they were culprit, they were complicit in this. We, we still have Guantanamo and it's still open. It's still there. You know, how many presidents have we had that, that said that they will close down Guantanamo? I mean, the first and most famous or infamous was Obama, who said that closing down Guantanamo was going to be his very first act. I got a Nobel Prize out and of it. And he got a Nobel Prize out of that. And even Trump at one stage said that it's costing too much money. I mean, that was his angle but it's still there. And to the shame and disgrace of many countries. I mean, I, I remember a particular case where the person who was without charge for 10 years, 12 years back then, was told he can go, but there was no country that would accept him. His own country was, you know, said, we don't I mean, want that's, him. That's what that was right now. Yeah. You know, they, they should have released him a long time ago, but you know, he's still there. He's never done anything wrong. Um, but they don't want to release him to, where well, can they release him to? It, show, it shows you that 
it shows you that we are in a very bad place despite the, uh, you put it brilliantly, the confetti, despite the, the colors, despite the tunes, despite the, the sunny days and, uh, you know, everyone feeling that they're okay. But in actual fact, um, in, in the margins, uh, horrible things are being, uh, being done and are being done under officialdom. I mean, it's not just gangs and thieves and killers and muggers. It's actual government. Absolutely. And you know, which is why it's, you have to look at the way, you know, the interests that are at play here in terms of, you know, why is it that you can say the regime, like Assad's regime is a rogue regime and then still be willing to send information to the security agency, still be willing to send, you know, outsource torture and interrogation to them because, you know, when you strip away, you know, everything in relation to the public polemic, there is a degree of cooperation that still happens between these states. And there's always interests at play. You know, when we just look at Libya, for example, now don't get me wrong, I'm no fan of Gaddafi whatsoever. I'm very, very happy to see him go. He was a murderer and a torturer and did terrible, terrible things. And, you know, but we just have to look at the way that the Blair government, as you mentioned yourself, was willing to interact with him over ostensibly what? Their hatred for practicing Muslims. That's all it really came down to. You want to present the idea that practicing Muslims who are practicing in their daily lives present an existential threat. And so you would rather normalize a murderer and a torturer and a complete despot like Gaddafi uh, than do that. But the moment things change. The moment the revolution starts and you think, and you look at Libya again, you think, oh, hold on a second. This is an opportunity for us because Libya has a lot of resources we could do with, right? The very people that you're accusing in this country of being threats, of being Al-Qaeda, or being existential threats to the security of this country that you were trying to deport back to Libya, end up going back there after the revolution starts and end up becoming the, the personal bodyguards of David Cameron when he arrives. So what happened to that then? Right now, it's all of a sudden, these guys are okay because we can do business here. And, and for me, it's one of the reasons why, in my mind, they never intervened in Syria because Syria had nothing to give them whatsoever. There was no monetary gain from being involved in Syria. When, when, when young men were, were, were traveling back and forth to Libya from the UK, and I don't have a problem with that. I'm just going to say out personally. I have no issue with that whatsoever. But neither did the British government because they were being asked at the border the same thing that, that people like me who are doing human rights work are getting stopped under the same legislation. They're getting stopped and being asked, well, what were you doing in Libya? Oh, I was helping the revolution. Welcome back. I'm glad you made it back safely. Completely different standard when it came to Syria. Like Syria provided nothing. It provided nothing in, in the sense of, and we're talking about chalk and cheese here in terms of the levels of violence. While Assad the regime, not only now, but has been doing since the days of his father, right? It, it should have made it a complete pariah state many, many decades ago. And yet Assad is not only there, not only did they not intervene in any meaningful way, but it's being normalized now. By who? By UAE, by Saudi Arabia, by everybody. Jazakallah khairan. Barakallah <laughs> Mashallah. Brilliant.